Welcome back to Wake Up with Nubian Tigers Talk, a podcast brought to you by a group of Black Princetonians where we talk about issues that impact our Black communities. With me today is my co-host, as always, Ray Small. So Ray, what do we have for our listeners today? You know, Michelle, we've been talking about trying to do an episode um, with uh, Black veterans uh, and with so much going on between the wars that have that have ended and the wars that are about to begin and then also the war with um uh within within our own country within our own walls you know um we really wanted to get a perspective of, of black veterans and and how they saw this everything that's happening today so today we're fortunate to have two princeton alumni with us who are veterans Uh, And they're going to be talking about uh, being in the armed services from the perspective of Black officers. So, uh, Michelle, Commander David Steigman, uh, he graduated Princeton with a degree in history uh, in 1975, your class. And after a period of time in the private sector as a writer, editor, and analyst, he received his commission from Officer Candidate School in March of 1981. He was a gunnery officer and a combat information officer aboard a frigate making several deployments to the Mediterranean Sea and the North Atlantic uh, before he moved over to the reserves in 1984. Uh, David was also an analyst on a major defense-wide policy review, as well as a defense-wide personnel system. He also holds a uh, graduate degree in national security studies from the U.S. Naval War College in 1992. Impressive. Our other guest is Dr. Alicia Brooks Christie, class of 1977. She's an Army veteran and the Deputy Director of Reproductive Health and Women's Health Services in the Veterans Administration. Prior to joining the VA, she was a reproductive endocrinologist and clinical investigator at the National Institute for Health. While on active duty, Dr. Christie was chairman of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Walter Reed and retired at the rank of Colonel. She holds the rank of professor at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences and is an adjunct professor at Howard University School of Medicine. Dr. Christie was the 2020 winner of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine Humanism in Medicine Award. In 2021, she received a Mentor of the Year Award from the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. All right. Well, we want to we want to thank uh, David and Alicia for being here. Uh, we've been talking about doing this episode for some time, and and it's come to fruition. So we look forward to it. And you know, um, a question for both of you guys to begin: Black people have a long and distinguished history with the United States Armed Services, stretching all the way back to the beginnings of our foundation as a nation. What motivated each of you to join your branch of service? And Alicia, we'll start with you. Well, uh, mine was actually purely mercenary. Um, They paid for medical school and they paid all the fees, the tuition, and I got a stipend as well. And at the time, most of my medical school class were more than $100,000 in debt. And my mother was a widowed school teacher. And so for that reason, I joined the military. And it was not that long after Vietnam. So it was very conflicted about it. And the reason I joined the Army as opposed to the Air Force and the Navy is because I missed the deadlines for the Air Force and the Navy. I had thought of joining the Navy in when I, I was in college going to OCS. 
My father was Navy. My mother's father and uncle were merchant marine, British and U.S. merchant marine. My parents were none too thrilled with the idea. Post-Vietnam, we don't want our son dying overseas, plus all the stories of prejudice in the Navy. I went to work for four years in publishing in New York and had some ups and downs, uh, laid off in the budget crunch of 79. At that time, I decided I'm going in. It was always Navy or Coast Guard. I wanted to go to sea. And uh, and did your, your father have a, a, a lot of influence you uh, on, on you uh, in that regard? The interesting thing is my parents each went back and forth, whether it was my grandfather who died when I was eight and was a major influence on me, or my father. Dad always had me watching Victory at Sea, the uh, NBC documentary from the 50s. He idolized the Navy, but I think it's because it got him away from a domineering older brother and older sister for four years. My, my father was in the dental corps in the army uh, for four years around the Korean War. And when I was commissioned, I wore his captain's bars. And when he was stationed uh, at Fort Dix, at that time they had segregated housing. So my father bought a trailer, bought a motor home rather than to be in segregated housing. Wow, wow, wow. that's wow. amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, yeah. So Alicia, I'll question to you now to kind of go into the, your personal uh, career. You were originally part of the Army Medical Corps, correct? So when you began your uh, service career, uh, can you do us uh, uh, and our listeners a favor and paint a picture of what it was like for you early on as a woman and also as a black woman in the army? Well, I not infrequently got the question, what is it like to be the only African-American? What is it like to be the only woman or to be the only African-American woman? And what I would tell people is when you're a white male, you're presumed to be competent until you prove yourself incompetent. When you're a woman of color, you're presumed to be incompetent until um, you prove yourself competent. And those are very different starting places. So there was always sort of um, an unsaid, because I didn't experience overt racism, but there was always kind of an unsaid, you know, you're taking a spot from a white man who's more qualified. And uh, early in my career, what I would get from, for instance, male patients is they would call me miss instead of doctor, where they would assume that I was the nurse. And uh, I had uh, one patient who was running down the hall after me and he said, miss, miss, I need a prescription. I said, well, that's gonna be a problem for you because doctors write prescriptions. And so he never called me miss again after that. Um, it, it's, it's always about drugs, isn't it? I mean <laughs> <laughs> True, true. If they need the drugs, they'll call you uh, by your name, right? Yeah, and even later in my career, when I was a colonel, I got asked to be on promotion boards not infrequently because they had to have diversity. And so I checked two blocks. I was two, two boxes. I was black and I was a woman. And so the major, now keep in mind, I was a colonel at the time. Uh, the major who was coordinating the promotion board went around the room and uh, talked about why the people were there and gave the credentials of the white men. And when he got to me, he said, and Colonel Christie is here because she's a black woman. 
And I said, let me tell you why I'm here. And I had to remind him about my credentials. And his face was red and it was, he was apologetic. And, oh, I mentioned that because we have to have diversity on the promotion boards. But it was often a matter of you were assumed to be less capable and less comp competent than your white colleagues. Right. And like, as if they couldn't tell you were the diverse person on the board by looking at you. <laughs> right. And that's a story that, um, you know, we frequently hear across the board, no matter whom we've had on the show, no matter what profession they're in, you know, this struggle with the presumption that you're not competent. Uh, and so you don't start at an even space, you know, you start below the bar and have to climb your way up. So it's, it's sad to hear that that's repeated also in the services, but not surprising, right? So today you specialize in women's health and reproductive services, uh, and you've been at the VA. Can you give us a sense of um, the health problems our women veterans might be experiencing? Well, women that are enrolled in VA, uh, they one tend to be sicker, they tend to have service-related conditions compared to the, the general population. And there's also a lot of mental health comorbidities. So about two-thirds of women that are getting care in the VA, women veterans that are enrolled in VA, have a mental health diagnosis, most of it being PTSD or depression or anxiety. And so that obviously affects other things like pregnancy, or other medical conditions that they might have. Uh, women of color are also overrepresented in uh, both the DOD, in the military, and the VA. And so about 30% of women veterans enrolled in VA are African-American. And Alicia, what does DOD stand for, for those in our audience that, that don't, don't know? Uh, Department of Defense, and, it, and it's essentially uh, the military. And so, um, I've gotten used to using acronyms, but I'll, I'll, I'll make an effort to say military instead of uh, DOD, because I understand many in the audience may not be familiar with, with that acronym. And women of color are overrepresented in the military as well. And so um, Blacks are about 19% in the military. Uh, so women of color are overrepresented, but not to the same degree that they are in the VA. And so all women veterans don't get care in the VA. And so people that are enrolled in the VA, um, they have various different categories. And so you're more likely to be eligible for care in the VA if you have uh, service-related conditions, particularly if there's significant disability associated with that. So, so it's, this is now the third show, actually, where we've uh, been talking about the mental health problems that some of uh, Black women have uh, across a number of different sectors. So it's, it's interesting that that is a consistent factor that we're looking at in terms of uh, the Black female population in the United States, um, that, that our mental health uh, and, you know, continues to be a factor given the conditions that we're living on. I'm going to, um, I'm going to skip to a question and come back to the tail hook scandal in a minute. But I saw you in the congressional hearings when you were talking about reproductive health services for veterans. And the hearing was talking about a number of issues, which I have to admit, I wasn't familiar with any of these, but it had to do with infertility issues and 
um, having veterans get access to that. And a lot of the questions from one of the senators was about male veterans who are paralyzed as a result of IEDs or, or what have you. And it made me think for a minute that I didn't ever remember seeing a black female vet in a wheelchair, but I know that there have to be some black female vets who have been incapacitated at that level. And I'm wondering if you could um, share with us what their experiences are, particularly in the reproductive uh, context and uh, um, one, why we don't see them and two, are they getting assistance uh, with their needs to help create families and do what, what people who are not disabled can do? Well, there's a very large prosthetics office. And so um, there are a number of veterans who get care in the VA um, that are disabled with missing limbs, some of them in, in wheelchairs. And the reason in Congress that they focus so much on the spinal cord injuries, because <clears throat> that's an easy service-connected condition to make an argument that it affects their fertility. Uh, usually with women, if they have um, a significant abdominal injury, uh, then that would relate result in hysterectomy. And so they're less likely to maintain reproductive function with similar sorts of, of injuries. Um, but there is an organization, um, Paralyzed Veterans of America, and there are other veteran support organizations um, for veterans who, who have those particular disabilities. And women veterans, unfortunately, overall, and particularly women veterans of color, are often underrepresented in the ads and in the news stories. And when people think of veterans, um, they often think of men. And in fact, um, I get my medical care at Walter Reed and people will still call my husband, Colonel Christie. You know, they'll assume he's the one that's, oh that's, that ha had served in the military. And so that has a lot to, to do with it. And the other thing I think is people tend to relate to people who are similar to them. And so um, a congressman who happens to be a white male relates to a white male service member who uh, has been injured and is in a wheelchair as a, result, as a result of that. And so I think they tend to be much more visible. And so it's not that there aren't disabled women veterans, particularly disabled women veterans of color. It's just that they aren't as, as visible. Uh, in my office, what we're uh, doing is we're partnering with a number of different offices to make sure that women with spinal cord injuries get appropriate reproductive health care and that all the clinics have the appropriate facilities uh, to serve these women. So we're working with the uh, Spinal Cord Injury Office with comprehensive health and with reproductive health in order to do that. One of the other things that we're doing in that space is we're also partnering with subject matter experts about sexual function and fertility issues in women with spinal cord injuries. Yeah. It, it was interesting. I think what you say is right about uh, the senators because the, the ones I saw who were mostly male and mostly white just seemed to have difficulty 
difficulty contemplating women's body parts <laughs> and the sexual needs that women might have. And most of the questions devolved back to men, even though it was a committee about, you know, anyway. Um, so, so that was an interesting experience to see me, for me to see you in that role. So let, let me get back to uh, where I was going before. And um, that is that uh, in the 1991 tail hook scandal, uh, it was revealed that the degree of sexual assault and violence against women in the service was, was much more prevalent than people thought. And over the past year, uh, there have been many stories about uh, violence against women of color who are serving, including sexual assaults and homicides. Can you tell us how prevalent that violence is and what, if anything, how have, has it manifested as far as your experience? And, and if you know, what is the service, what are the services doing about that? Well, within, uh, let me start first with the VA, because in the VA, there's mandatory universal screening for military sexual trauma. And so that's sexual assault and sexual harassment. And so one in three women veterans that are getting care in the VA uh, report, have a positive screen for military sexual trauma or MST. Say that, and, I'm sorry, I'm, say that again, Alicia. How yes, many? it's one in three, but it includes not just sexual assault, but also sexual harassment. And these are women that are getting care in the VA. And in fact, if you aren't otherwise eligible to get care in the VA, but you've experienced military sexual trauma, you can get medical care related to that. So for instance, counseling, or if say you had an orthopedic injury during a sexual assault, you could get care for that. So medical care related to the military sexual trauma. And so one in three report have a positive screen. So they ask them two questions. One has to deal with sexual harassment and the other one has to deal with sexual assault. So um, answering in the positive to either of them is a, is a positive screen. And it's one in three women, one in 50 men. And so the actually, there are more men who've experienced military sexual trauma be, just because there are so many more men in the military and, and in the VA. And um, of the veterans who screen positive for military sexual trauma, 16% of them are African-American women. Mm -hmm. And so um, they're actually somewhat underrepresented on the positive screens, but one of the problem with any of those sorts of screens is um, that you don't uh, know who is reticent to answer in the positive. And it also doesn't tell you who uh, needed or sought care, but it's one in three for women, veterans getting care in the VA and one in 50 men. So, so you also shared with us some information about um, black female vets who, who have actually been killed uh, while on duty. So maybe um, you can you can yes, and 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 Ray provided actually. I had difficulty finding there was actually a documentary about PFC Johnson who was actually um, killed in Iraq, and the circumstances surrounding her death and the autopsy were inconsistent with a suicide. And the case was, was closed and ruled a suicide, but her father, who's a psychologist who actually uh, worked as a civilian with the military for a number of years, um, continued the investigation 
um, and you know hired a, a, a pathologist, et cetera. And um, I don't have the the link for the the documentary. Um, Ray we'll can provide it. okay. Ray we'll can provide, provide that. Yeah. And so there was that case, and there was a, a another case of a young enlisted black woman, and she was stabbed to death. And they accepted the her white colleague's explanation of they were fooling around with a knife. And he was dishonorably discharged, and I believe he got 18 months. So one of the big problems, I think, is the lack of equity and consequences. And so Ray and I were talking about the recent case of the young Hispanic woman um, who was killed at Fort Hood. Right. And so I believe somewhere between 14 and 16 people uh, were disciplined at Fort Hood. And so I was saying to Ray, and I said, you know, well, perhaps that's a start. And, and he pointed out, well, what was the discipline? So if it's a negative letter in your file that disappears after two years, that certainly isn't consistent with the, the level of the offense. And so I think in general, that's a big problem with all of these things is that there aren't consequences. And I don't wanna misquote this attorney, but it was an Air Force attorney who spoke at a military sexual trauma conference and uh, nearly 50% of women who report military sexual trauma uh, experience some retaliation. Mm. And only 3% of their attackers are actually prosecuted and sentenced. And so you can see what a dis disincentive it is to report with those kinds of statistics. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, uh, so I want to bring David in because um, uh, the uh, question that Michelle just asked of uh, Alicia regarding uh, the tailhook scandal. So, David, you were in intelligence at that time when that took place, or it, tell me a little bit more about your um, uh, your understanding of the scandal and how your uh, part of your branch of the service interacted with um, uh, with the Navy at that at that point. I was a line officer in the surface and unrestricted lines. So tailhook was entirely naval aviators. My connection was I was the lead reporter for Navy Times, which is part of the Army Times, Navy Times Defense News. And as the lead reporter, one of the things that struck me was the first two names that the Naval Investigative Service the predecessor to NCIS, which is so widely seen on TV. And NIS's investigation, out of all the people in the gauntlet, the roles of men, a black male Marine, and an Australian officer. These were all they picked up. And when they showed the pictures to Paul Coughlin, the Navy Lieutenant, who was the instigator of the complaint, he was uncertain. When it reached Navy senior leadership and Marine Corps senior leadership, it was an interest, and I had a couple of good sources because the commanding officer, my second commanding officer, who I'd follow him to the ends of the earth, and he's been a good mentor to me, was one of those 
the the view was wait this this is unsat this you know nis go back and do do your job uh when the cases were referred to commandant marine corps for adjudication he took note that practically the entire squadron roster for major bonham the black marine said oh he wasn't there near the gauntlet at the time um he he was with he was with us partying in a suite in the different part of the hotel. Well, Commandant Marine Corps is faced with NIS, which already after the battleship Iowa, there were questions of, of these guys are genuine hard charging police force or, and with an entire squadron saying, no, we weren't near there and we can get you plenty of witnesses. Commandant Marine Corps decided uh, to withdraw all charges as uh, requested by NIS. Uh, how, that, David, how unusual is that? Uh, does that happen a lot? Does it happen um, only on rare, rare occasions? I mean, from your standpoint? That NIS would do this poor a job didn't surprise me. Note that within the past five years, NIS had botched the investigation of the Walker spies and the battleship Iowa, that one officer would be charged like this. Part of it is surprising. And I say part of it because there were enough other officers there that it should have been very, very easy. Um, and also saying, you know, the, it was when they really began pushing because all they initially tried to say was a foreign officer. And it was when they pushed that they figured it was probably an English-speaking officer, which narrowed it down to Canada, the UK, and Australia. Five other officers were the key focus of the investigation. Discipline hit. Uh, they did a shabby job. As far as me as a reservist, the only way it hit was we are, every officer had to sign a statement uh, that they had not been nowhere near uh, the events in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Well, so David, you know, you, you just mentioned that that black officer or that black uh, uh, naval uh, officer was not, um, I mean, they had to drop the charges against them. But uh, in a recent article published in 2020, black officer, uh, black officers and enlisted um, uh, people criticized the armed services report on disparate rates of discipline that were racially driven with black soldiers being disciplined more frequently and more severely than whites. I mean, no, no difference between the military services and, you know, uh, regular society. So did you see any evidence of fellow officers finding more fault, fault with their uh, black enlisted? Um, yes, members? I did. Yes, I did. Um, some of the officers, it was a case of genuine racial prejudice. Uh, I can think of one officer on our ship who slammed, uh, who wrote a guy up for missing uh, the end of his leave, his vacation. Well, there was a snowstorm in Buffalo. The only case where there were there, no, the, of the two times where there were racial complaints on the ship I was on, um, one of them was because an officer who was Naval Academy, who's a friend of mine, came on and he basically slammed six people 
five white and one black in his division. Some of the academy guys can be very bung-ho. And the previous officer had been one of these pull with an easy or, so to speak. So that one, when it turned out to be six enlisted getting slammed and only one was black, the view was Mr. Hancock just needs to adjust his view towards his entire division. Otherwise, I can think of a few other cases on the ship I was on where non-judicial punishment. Oh, and in my last two months, I was on separation boards. That's where you have three or four officers judging whether junior enlisted with drug offenses should be retained in the service or pushed out. And it struck me that minorities were much more likely to be hammered than white uh, enlisted. So that's the first part of our episode with Colonel Dr. Alicia Christie, Princeton class of 77, and Commander David Steidman, class of 75. So stay tuned for the conclusion of the discussion with them in our next episode. If you enjoyed what you heard today, visit our website, NubianTigersPodcast.com. In addition to the podcast, we also post a resource page for each subject to provide additional sources of information. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at NubianTigers, written as one word. We're also on YouTube on the Nubian Tigers podcast channel. Our podcast is hosted by Anchor FM, but if you have a favorite podcast app, we're probably on it. Just look for the Nubian Tigers talk. Looking forward to sharing some knowledge with you next time. Wake up, wake up, wake up.